The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 8. You probably have caught on that uh, the way our schedule works on the first and third Sunday, Ryan is preaching right now a series, just finished a series on the Sola Scriptura, the scriptures alone, and I've been going through the book of Luke on the, on the second and fourth Sunday, and uh, we're in chapter 8 of Luke. This is the only book in the New Testament I have never preached through, so it's been a great delight to do this. It's stretching. Let me read to you this text, beginning in verse 40. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. And as Jesus returned, that is when he returned back to Capernaum from Gedaria, or Gerasen, he came back to Capernaum, back to his home base. The people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. So they had gotten news back about what had happened with the, with the demoniac of Gedaria and how God supernaturally used him in these, both in that boat trip that turned into a storm and then casting out these demons. And so they're there to welcome him. Verse 41, and there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet, and he began to implore him to come to his house. He had a an only daughter, a monogamous daughter. That's the word that's used in John 3.16 for Jesus. He's the only begotten son of God. And this was Jairus' only daughter, her one, his one and only daughter, 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, the same number of years this little girl had lived. For 12 years she'd had this hemorrhaging and she could, she could not be healed by anyone. As you know, Luke is a doctor. He's a, he's a physician, a doctor. And uh, in Mark, when Mark tells this story, he says she tried all of the physicians and none of them could help her. She spent all of her money trying to get help from doctors and they couldn't help her. Luke doesn't mention that. But notice in, uh, in verse 44, and she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And they were, while they were all denying it, Peter said, master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me for I was aware that power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, this is the only place in the gospel where Jesus uses terms of endearment for a a woman. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid. He's talking to Jairus. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. 
Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, these are, these are professional mourners that are there, really, literally. This is what would happen. And they were weeping and wailing. And Jesus said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, called, which means with a strong voice. It's kind of like what happened at the tomb of Lazarus. When Jesus spoke with a loud voice, he shouted, Lazarus, come forth. And with this little girl, he says, child, arise. Tim Keller says it's kind of like, because the word child means little child, little girl. Tim Keller, I heard him preach on this, and he said, it was like Jesus saying, honey, it's time to get up. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. Her parents were amazed. That is, they were beside themselves. But he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Let me pray. Our Father, we need your help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray that uh, he would allow us to see the glory of Christ, the power of Christ, and the compassion of Christ, which is an open picture of you, Father. For you sent your Son so that we might know you. So we pray that the Spirit of God would do that work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In Hebrews uh, chapter 1, in fact, I think Ryan read this a couple weeks ago. In Hebrews uh, chapter 1, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. This is how he opens his book. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That is, he spoke in the Old Testament. We have all those recorded. And it says he spoke to his people in many different ways. But in these last days... And we are living in the last days, which began when the pouring out of the Spirit. He said, in these last days, he has spoken to us in such a one as a son, when he appointed him heir of all things, through whom also he made the ages. And he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins on the cross and he went back to the Father, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. I uh, remember some years ago hearing J.I. Packer over a short period of time, about six months, I heard him about five times because he he was speaking a different, you know who J.I. Packer is. He's a very old Bible teacher, British, very British, and kind of quiet-spirited and almost timid when you talk to him. But he kept saying this, I kept hearing him repeat this, that our pursuit in life should be to come to understand who God is for us in Jesus. Because the Father sent Jesus into the world to reveal himself. And in fact, he said, everything we know about God, we have come to know through Jesus. And what we have in this story, as Jesus, this story continues in Luke 8, there are four different miracles here, four different times when Jesus delivers people from very difficult tribulations. He manifests omnipotent power, the power to heal, 
the power to raise the dead, the power to calm the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the power to cast out demons who were destroying a man's life. He has great, great power, and it's a reflection of the power of the Father. And so he manifested this power. And from this, we come to understand that God is love and God is compassionate and God is all powerful. But anyway, John 14, verses four through seven, if you had known me, Jesus says, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him because you know me. And if you have seen him, and Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus responded, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So all that we learn about Jesus is a revelation of the Father. This is how the Father is. He's compassionate, and he's almighty. Now, these are very powerful acts and works of God in this these verses I just read, but they're not the greatest power of God. The greatest demonstration of the power of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. We're told that over and over and over again. Listen to this. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. In other words, how foolish is this that God would decide to save a people for himself by sending his son into the world to take their place and die for their sins that they could be reconciled to God? And how weak could God get hanging on a cross, beaten to a pulp? And yet Paul says, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God, that's the cross, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Remember Paul said, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. You know where sin abounded? It abounded on Calvary. When they hung Jesus on a cross, when they beat him and beat him and beat him and nailed him to a cross and and wanted to destroy him. That's the weakness of God. But Paul says, oh, it's mighty, mighty power. It's a great demonstration of the power of God. In fact, you're all familiar with Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the, the righteous man shall live by faith. Amazing. The power of God demonstrated at the cross. That's the great manifestation of power. That means that whatever you need him to do to deliver you is so easy for him. He doesn't have to exhaust himself to accomplish his purposes in your life. He's a mighty God. But not only that, he's compassionate. He actually cares about us. And he cared about this woman and this little girl. And Jesus displayed the heart and the power of his father in raising them up. This is also, not only is is the cross the greatest power, the greatest act of power that God ever did, but it's also the greatest demonstration of love. John 3.16 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or how about Romans 5.8? God is continually recommending his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, if you, if you watched um, The Passion of Christ, that movie, uh, maybe as you watch that, and people no doubt recoiled at all the gore and everything, and yet as a believer we understand that's the love of God. That's the great demonstration of the love of God for his people. This is what he was willing to do. The great revelation of God's power and God's love. So here in this passage, and of course this is prior to the cross. This is before Jesus goes to the cross. But it points to it in the sense that it points to all that God is for us in Jesus. His compassion and his power are a demonstration of the love and power of the Father. In verse 40, it tells us that the crowd is waiting to welcome Jesus back to Capernaum. If, you, if we had the picture of the map, we could see where Jesus comes back from Gedaria, back over to Capernaum, which becomes his headquarters in this northern area of Israel. This is where he does all of his ministry from. This is where he called his apostles, these fishermen who became fishers of men. This is where he did all of his ministry in that area. And so he comes back home, and the people greet him. They're waiting for him. Our text today that I just read is really about two daughters. I don't know if you noticed that. Two daughters. The little girl, who was the daughter of Jairus, and the woman who has the issue of blood. And Jesus heals her, and he says to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. What did he mean by that? He meant because you trusted me. What an act of trust. She thought if she could just sneak up behind him and simply touch the tassel on his outer garment, she would be healed. You say, well, man, that sounds like magic. No, that's what she was doing was exercising faith That the Jesus who was healing and raising the dead and doing these miraculous works, if she could just get close enough to touch the garment upon him, she would be healed. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And so what happens here, as as I've read this, you notice first we're introduced to this this man who is the the leader of the synagogue. And she's got some kind of, of... his daughter is dying and he wants Jesus to come and pray for her. We'll look at that in a minute. That's really the first daughter, but there's a break in between. In verses 43 through 48, we see this second daughter who comes. This woman, we don't know how old she is, but she's an adult of some kind. And the problem she has is very serious and it's alienating. Because according to Leviticus 15, she couldn't even participate in the worship of God with the rest of the the community of faith. She couldn't go to the temple. And she couldn't go into the synagogue. They banned her from that because of this issue of blood. And so you can imagine what her life was like. For 12 years, we're told by Mark, she went to every, anybody who said that they could solve her problem. She spent all of her money, but nothing happened. She still had the same problem, and she had to stay away from 
the worshiping community. She was unclean ceremonially. So this was really a difficult thing. It wasn't just that she was sick. It was she was barred from even gathering with the people of God. She's alienated. In essence, she's banned from God's presence. Did you notice this morning in Psalm 16? I believe this is a messianic psalm, and it really does tell us the thoughts of Jesus as he faced the cross. Because he knows the Father's going to raise him from the dead. His body is not going to rot. It's not going to decay. But there, Jesus talks about the wonder and the glory of being in the presence of his Father. And he says, in your presence is abundance of joy. Think of that. And here Jesus is when he's praying this in the garden. God seems so far away. And that's why he appeals to his father. And he says, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, that is, if there's any way that I could go through this without having to drink, drink the wrath of God, that's what the cup's all about. It's a picture of the wrath of God. If there's any way that I could not drink the cup, And then he stops himself right in mid-sentence, and he says, but not my will, your will be done. He was willing to suffer in this way. He was willing to suffer separation from the Father. And if you remember on the cross, I remember a time I heard uh, Steve Fernandes preach on the cross, and and the way he described, you remember that when Jesus is on the cross, it, it gets dark for three hours. It was so dark, people couldn't move around. They couldn't see anything. And as he preached this, I was going through a heavy, heavy trial, I thought, at the time. And uh, we ran over there to hear the word of God. And as he was preaching, he, said, he talked about this darkness because the Father just pulled the shade so that nobody could see what was happening with his son as he poured out his wrath on his own son. And Jesus absorbed all the wrath that was due us. He exhausted the wrath of God for us. What a savior this is. And you see, Jesus knew what it was like to be in the presence of the Father. So this is an expert. (laughs) The Son of God says, in his presence is an abundance of joy. And in your right hand, and I take it, it's, it literally is in your right hand, is this what the Father gives? He says, in your right hand are pleasures evermore. Jesus had been with the Father from all eternity. And now he's being separated from the Father. And he says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the great demonstration of the love of God that the son was willing to be separated from the father in whom there is an abundance of joy. This, this is stunning to me. And when you look at other places in the New Testament, it talks about how when believers come together, Jesus says this in Matthew 18. He, he says, where two or three of you are gathered together, there I am in the midst of you. There I am in the midst of you. You know what that means? That means when believers come together, when we gather in his name, which means we intentionally come together to pray together, to worship together, to be in his word together, he is there in the midst of us. 
He is right there. And Jesus claimed that in, in God's presence is abundance of joy. I can remember back in the 70s, I was running a business and or we had a Tuesday night Bible study. Our Sunday morning service, there was about 30, about 30 to 40 people there. On Tuesday night, we had about 150 people would come out for Bible study. Phil Howard was teaching. I'd work all day and think, I just want to go home and take a nap. I don't want to go to church. Go to church. And so I would get home. But what what always changed my mind is I knew this. If I got there, I would experience the presence of God. Because that's where Jesus is. He's among his people. Have you ever thought of this? We just started a new study on, on Sunday nights. And the first thing we're going to look at is the body of Christ. There's one body, which means that all believers everywhere, all true believers everywhere are part of this one body. It's true we gather in different places. You know, we gather right here in downtown Knightson. But there are people gathering all over the world. And there are some believers who are already in the presence of God. And we're one body. And when we gather together in Jesus' name, there he is in the midst of us. Now, I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure that when we enter into the third heaven, into the presence of God, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, when I die, I'll immediately go into the presence of God. And that's going to be better than any time I've ever experienced. But you know what? Gathering with God's people is one of the most wonderful privileges we have. I don't care where... If it's in your home, if it's in a barn, uh, wherever it is, when we gather together, we are experiencing and we are in the presence of God when people come together in Jesus' name. On the 4th of July, we used to have the corn fest, remember that? And so we would gather out at our place right down the road here and meet behind our barn, put up a cover, and we would meet there and, and sing, and somebody would preach, and we, we would meet together in Jesus' name. And so I know that God, the Son, has been in my barn. He's actually been there because people have gathered there to worship. People have gathered in his name. That's the only thing that keeps me coming to church. I mean it, knowing that I can be in the presence of God with his people. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. And here Jesus was willing to hang on a cross and to be separated from the Father for the first time in all eternity. He was separated from the Father as he became sin. This is what Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says. The Father made him who knew no sin, that is his Son, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so in that three-hour period when Jesus was on the cross in our place and the Father poured out his judgment upon his own Son, he was manifesting the greatest act of love that the world has ever known. There's nothing like it. There is nothing like it. His love for us. And Jesus is the one who reveals that to us. And so as we see him caring for this woman who was unclean, and this is the thing about Jesus. You know, it was against the Mosaic law for anyone to touch a leper. 
If you touched a leper, somebody with leprosy, you would be banned from worship. You'd be banned from going to the temple. But Jesus touched lepers, and he touched this woman who had an issue of blood. And guess what happened? He didn't become unclean. She became clean. She was healed and made whole. This is what Jesus can do because Jesus is the great manifestation of God in a very personal, direct way. What would it have been like to be there and to see him with your own eyes, to reach out and touch Jesus? That's what 1 John chapter 1 starts that way. When John starts talking about, John was with him for three and a half years and he says, we touched him. We gazed upon him. This eternal life come in the flesh. And so when we come together, We get to experience his presence, but he was willing to be cast out of the presence of the Father for those three hours for us so that we could be brought into the presence of Almighty God. That's why I think it, I would feel, my my son used to play tennis when he was about 12 years old. He played tournament tennis and he was really kicked to go and watch this. But when we moved to Southern California, we moved down there for a while for me to finish seminary. And when we were down there, we found out all the tennis matches were on Sunday. And so I said to him, I'm sorry, but we're not going to miss the privilege of meeting with God's people on Sunday to go play tennis. And so he took up basketball. He started playing basketball. Because I think it's more important I think it's more important for you to be in the presence of the living God with his people than to be world champions. It's the greatest privilege in all the world to meet with God's people and to experience being in the presence of God. The Lord Jesus Christ promised that. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, in First Corinthians five, Paul talked about church discipline. Because Jesus had said in Matthew eighteen, the reason that we can love each other enough to confront each other when I'm living in disobedience to Christ, the reason you should have the courage to confront me is because Jesus said, When you gather some believers together, I'm there in the midst of you. I'll empower you and enable you to do what I've called you to do. Because we've got to love each other enough to do what the Word of God does, and that is to reprove and rebuke when we need it. Because there's nothing as important as you walking in fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. It's the most important thing of all. I had a woman come to me probably 15 years ago. And she had invited some people to come to church. And she came up to me really excited, wanted me to go meet them. She says it would be really good for us if these people would join our church. Because they're very wealthy. (laughs) At first I thought she was kidding. But she wasn't. You know what's really important? Not that you're rich. But that you experience life with Jesus Christ so when you gather in his name you're right in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ I'm amazed by this because when you think about 
the body of Christ being in so many different, gathering in so many different places. I mean, when you, when you go online and look at where Christians meet around the world, and you'll find it's amazing the places they meet. If you, if you look at some house churches in China, you see a tiny little apartment and people sitting there, the congregation is sitting there, and they're so close together, their knees are touching. I mean, it's just cramped in this little bitty space, and they're worshiping God. And they think that's the greatest privilege in all the world. You know, in China, if churches build a church, what's happened in the past historically is the government comes and bulldozes it down, digs a hole and pushes all the remains of it in that hole. In fact, what happened not too long ago, this kind of came up again. And when they were doing this, the pastor's wife of this little church tried to stand in front of this bulldozer and they pushed her right into the hole with the building and covered her up. We are a privileged people. I mean, I understand those aren't the most comfortable chairs in the world, but they're not bad. (laughs) And you're with God's people. You're sitting here with people who know Jesus Christ and gather here in his name. And they know what's going to happen when they come here. They're going to sing praises to him. They're going to hear the word of God. They're going to pray. They're going to fellowship in Christ. That's what happens in our house fellowships. It's what, it's what happens every time we meet together. We come together in Jesus' name. And it's a wonderful, wonderful privilege that we have. Well, back to the first daughter. This woman was, was healed, and uh, she bore witness. In fact, if you look at verse 39, it says, Return to your house. I'm, this, uh, I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. Let me stop here. Let me go back to verse, look at uh, verse 49. When these messengers come to Jesus, don't, they, come to, they come to Jairus and they say, don't bother the teacher any longer because he doesn't need to come. Your daughter is dead. Now that's a man of faith, isn't it? He has no confidence at all that Jesus could possibly raise a dead child to life. So it's all over. She's dead. There's no use bothering the teacher any longer. But Jesus says, oh, don't be afraid. He says to Jairus. In fact, notice he speaks to Jairus and into the mourners and then to the child. And notice what he says. To Jairus, he says, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. She's going to be raised from the dead and made well. To the mourners, he said, stop weeping. Because when I say there were professional mourners, there were people who did this. When you needed someone to come and mourn at a, at a funeral, they would come and do that. The mourners, to them, he says, stop weeping, for she is not dead. She hasn't died, but she is asleep. And they laughed him to scorn. But notice what he says to the child. He says to the child in verse 54, he calls out to her. The word call is a strong word, phaneo. It means to, it means to shout. <laughs> and he says very loud to her, this little girl is dead. And Jesus speaks loudly to her. He says, little one, it's time to get up. And what does she do? What does a dead person do when Jesus commands them to get up? They get up. 
you know, he's the one who's going to raise the dead at the last judgment. All the dead will be raised. He has a right to do that because he purchased us on the cross. I used to hear every morning, I would hear this. My wife, she's not here so I can tell this. My wife would talk to our daughters, first to Sean and then later to Katie. And she would say, I would hear in this little sing-song voice, Good morning, Mary Sunshine. How did you wake so soon? You scared the little stars away and shone away the moon. And then she'd come back in our bedroom and she'd say, Hit the deck, you got a lot to do today. <laughs> no, she didn't do that. But I used to hear that. I thought, what a sweet way to wake up. Those girls woke up every morning to that voice. Good morning, Mary Sunshine. It didn't solve all their problems, though. But you know, no matter what your situation is, it doesn't matter what your situation is. Whatever your situation, the important thing is what Jesus says. It's what Jesus says. I've noticed that even Christians, we've gotten this way. I told you the story about Jennifer's dad. He was telling me when he went to uh, India and he prayed for this guy who had been beaten up and he had a big hematoma on his head and he was staggering and barely walk and he asked John to pray for him. So John prays for him and John says, and then I said to him, you need to go see a doctor. And the guy says to him, why? I'm fine now because you prayed for me and he was healed. And we both started laughing because that's the kind of faith we have. See, this is Jesus. And if you remember, in 1 Timothy it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, a man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. He's our mediator. He's our mediator. He speaks for us to the Father. In fact, we're told the reason we can have confidence in prayer is because we're praying through Christ. He's our mediator. He appeals for us to the Father. Not only that, Romans 8 says, even the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the one who searches the hearts, I believe that's Jesus, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, and he intercedes to the Father, and God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is what he says in John 17. Get this. John 17 is part of the upper room discourse. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the last night he's going to be with them before he goes to the cross. He's going to be arrested that night. And in the room where they broke bread, he says to them, I am asking continually. I ask continually. It's a present tense. and It has this emphasis of he is continually asking on their behalf. He's telling the Father this. I continually ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but uh, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And he tells us who that is, by the way. It's all those who believe the testimony of the apostles about the resurrection. If you believe the testimony of the, of the apostles about Christ being raised from the dead and that he is the Savior, you believe upon him, Jesus said, I intercede for them. It would, it would really be something if he would never do this, but if God would give you just a little MP3 of what Jesus prayed for you today, wouldn't that be something? What is he asking for you? 
a lot of times we're wondering, well, why? I used to have a guy, a guy that would ask me this all the time. So, some of you remember him. His name was Harry, but he used to always say to me, uh, what is God trying t- to say to me? What is God trying to teach me? I finally said, you know, Harry, God has no problem whatsoever teaching you what he wants to teach you. He's not trying. That's not the problem. You just need to listen to him and rest on his word because he's interceding for you right now. I told Dewey this morning, I would really like to start calling him Job because I've watched. How many, when did you get saved? What day year was that? Do you know? 1999. So it was just a couple years after we started the church. Dewey came and came to faith in Christ. Ever since he came to faith in Christ, he has had trials and tribulations. Ever since. And he still wants to follow Jesus. It amazes me. But what really matters is, what is Jesus interceding, mediating for Dewey to the Father? What is he asking him? After, the, after service, we're going to pray for him. I told him, James 5 says that if you're sick, and the word sick there means weakened so that you just can't function like you need to. He says, this is what you should do. Call for the elders of the church to come, anoint you with oil, and pray over you. And the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Now, that puts a great deal of pressure on elders because it's our faith that he's talking about when we pray. If we agree, Jesus said in Matthew 18, if two of you agree on earth about anything, you will receive what you ask for. So after service, we're going to pray for Dewey before he leaves because he's going through a horrible trial. And um, I want God to heal him. I don't have the gift of healing, and neither do the other three elders. But we have a Savior who can heal. And so we are going to obey the Scripture. Now, I had to nudge him a little bit because he didn't call us, but I told him, even though you didn't call us, we're going to pray for you because I want to see him healed and set free. I want him to get his voice back. He has no voice. And he's an ambassador of Christ. And I say that the great power of God in his life, I've had four wonderful blessings over the years, especially uh, in different ways with Dewey, uh, Jack Hall, Gary Price, and Tony Martinez. To watch the, the miraculous power of God work in people's lives. It's been amazing to watch. You don't, you, I don't, I can't, I'm not going to tell you what, what Dewey, what Job, what he gave up, what it cost him to follow Christ. But I want to tell you, I haven't seen anybody who's had to pay a bigger price in order to follow Christ. And he's still following him. Still following him. Isn't that amazing? 18 years later, he's still following Christ. And Christ has been showing him his power throughout all those years. He's changed his character, given him a new heart, given him the Holy Spirit, gave him a spiritual gift, gave him a new family. That's what God does, isn't it? 
That's the power of God manifest in Christ. He saves people. He changes people. He gives them a new heart. He gives them such confidence in him they're willing to do whatever is necessary to follow Christ. Remember uh, in John 11 when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus? He had died and he was in the tomb. And Jesus raised his voice and he said, Lazarus, come forth. In some commentaries you'll read, if he hadn't said Lazarus, the whole graveyard would have come forth. Well, this little girl obeyed the master. This little 12-year-old girl, Jesus said, little child, it's time to get up. (laughs) And she got up. And she had been dead, and she got up. See, that's, that's the compassion of Jesus. And his compassion is even seen in the fact that after he raised her from the dead, he says he gave orders to the people there to feed her, give her some food. She's just come out of a very deep sleep. The parents are amazed. The word that's used for amazed, ex histemi, means to be out. It means to be beside yourself. You ever get like that? You ever get beside yourself? You get so amazed, so excited that you just can't hardly control yourself? That's what these parents were doing. And you can imagine this mother and father see their little 12-year-old girl raised from the dead. Can you imagine what that would be like? Jesus raises her from the dead. There's a really amazing thing. This is what I wanted to say before. Back in verse 39, if you notice, it says about the, about the, <clears throat> the man who had the demons cast out of him in Gedaria. Jesus says to him, return to your house. Describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now look over at the last verse in, in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 56. His parents were amazed. But Jesus instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine your little 12-year-old being raised from the dead and Jesus says to them, don't tell anybody. Why would he do that? This is a common command to the Jews. Every time Jesus heals someone or casts a demon out, he tells the people, don't tell anybody what happened. Why is that? Because these Jews who saw his glory were not the official witnesses that God was going to send. The great day of the revelation of who Jesus is to his people, Israel, is going to come in the near future, but not now, not then. For example, in Acts chapter 10, Peter speaks to some Gentiles, the house of Cornelius, and this is what he says. Listen to this. He's preaching to them and he says, God raised Jesus up on the third day and granted that he become visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after his, he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. This was God's witness to Israel, the apostles preaching the gospel. Many people came to faith in Christ. Remember on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people 
turned in faith to Christ, hearing one of these men, these witnesses of the resurrection of Christ, eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and they believed and were saved. Back in John 1, verse 11 and 12, it says, he came to his own creation and his own people did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, there were some. There were 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. There were the apostles. There were other Jews who did believe upon him. And by the end of the first century, there were thousands of Jews who had believed upon him. But the testimony to them, he says, as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And the official witnesses to Israel were the 12 apostles. And they proclaimed the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in power. In fact, I love the way Paul describes it when he, he's writing to the Thessalonians and he says, you remember when I came to you, the gospel didn't come to you in word only. It came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much full conviction. He's talking about himself. He preached with conviction. He was absolutely certain of the resurrection of Christ. And he says, just as you know what sort of men we became while we were with you for your sake. In other words, they were transformed by the Holy Spirit as they spoke forth this message that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Believe on him and you'll be saved. And he transformed them through declaring that message. Now we've said over and over again, all of us, all believers are ambassadors of Christ. We've been given this assignment to speak for him. And he hasn't told you, don't tell anybody about this. He's told you, appeal to people to be reconciled to God, just as you have been. It's a horrible thing to see a person become hardened to the gospel. It's one of the things I worry about with kids growing up in Christian homes and never seeming to have any interest whatsoever in the things of God. And they get gospel hardened. And it no longer, it no longer touches their heart takes nothing less than the almighty power of God in the Holy Spirit to penetrate the heart of a person to open their eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what we pray for every week. We pray that the Spirit of God would come in power and penetrate our hearts and cause us to see God manifest in his Son. And that's what we pray for for us today. God is compassionate. And God is powerful. Not only can he heal, he can make whole. He can deliver. He can set you free. He can take a person who has no desire whatsoever to believe on Christ, and he can penetrate the heart and open the eyes and give them such a profound desire to know Christ that they're really willing to turn to him. They're ready to turn to him in faith and take hold of him. That's what he did to you, isn't it? And he can do it for those that we so desire for them to have their eyes opened and to see the truth of who Christ is. When I think about these guys I mentioned, it's, it's, it's men that I've seen over these last years turn in faith to Christ and be transformed by the presence of Christ in their lives. Dewey, to me, is like a spiritual giant. I know he's cracking up inside, but that's how I feel. It's like this guy has faced so many trials, so, many, so much opposition in his Christian life, and yet he continues to follow Christ day after day after day. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Nobody else can. 
It's the power of God. So let me pray for us. Our Father, we've gathered here in Jesus' name, and we believe the truth. We believe that Jesus here is here. We believe he is here. And we say hallelujah. And we say praise the Lord. Jesus is here. And so we ask you, Father, that you would work in our hearts, that you would open our eyes and turn our hearts towards you, Father. We long, we long for you to do a work in us, to open our eyes afresh and let us see yourself in the face of your son. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he's done for us. Thank you for what he's doing for us today at this very moment. We thank you for an intercessor who calls out our name to you. That's an awesome thought to know that you know our name because Jesus intercedes for us continually. So we pray, Father, let this truth sink deep into our hearts. And as we fellowship together, I pray that you'd help us to be an encouragement to each other. I pray for every person here who's never rested their faith in Christ, that you would open their eyes, give them faith, give them repentance, give them a turning to you. Oh God, we thank you so much for the salvation we've received. We rejoice in it, we celebrate it, and we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.